0: I want to thank uh, all of you for coming, and thank Richard Hodges and the museum people for um, sharing their space, and thank the School of Arts and Sciences for, for funding our events. I remember very clearly the upsetting moment when I first heard spoken the name Zizek. It was 1989. I just arrived at Penn and embarked on the dreaded Ivy League tenure track, which meant I was expected to be well along In writing a uh, fabulous cutting-edge book, all I'd actually managed to do at that stage was to admit to myself that my dissertation was a piece of crap and that I had, at best, a few fragments toward a publishable manuscript. At a reception after a talk at the Comparative Literature Lounge, I was approached by a rather intimidatingly brilliant colleague, several years senior to me, a Russian with a PhD in mathematics, as well as this alarmingly fluent expertise in Hegel. He was a bona fide high theorist. And he, he comes over and begins asking me the very questions I, I dreaded. What was my book about? How far along was it? What exactly were my arguments? So I answered evasively. I said I was writing about modernist fiction, about comedy, about politics. I nattered on for a minute. And uh, he looked at me. He said, he's interesting. But, what are your theoretical coordinates? <laughs> and this was, this was hitting too near the jugular for me. I knew that the theoretical tools I had picked up in grad school uh, were the old standards, and not by any means the latest high-octane stuff. Um, all I could say was, well, there's Freud, and there's Marx. There's Freud's jokes in the relation to the unconscious, and there's Marxist literary criticism, as proposed in Jameson's The Political Unconscious. So I said, I'm basically trying to talk about literary jokes in their relation to the political unconscious. So this is the best I could do. My colleague scrutinized me again for another minute. And again, he said, is he interesting. But he added, maybe a little derivative of Zizek. And so there it was, this word or name I didn't even know at that time, which it was. Was it a man, a woman, a collective or institution? Um, this, this, this unfamiliar uh, bisyllabic thrown down by a senior colleague as a criticism of my theoretical coordinates and a challenge to the value and original, originality of my work. So it was that I first encountered Zizek as insult. Um, uh, how to deal with such a wound? I left the reception. I walked the two blocks down to the house of our own bookstore where we got our books in those days. And um, uh, right up front, I found the answer to my main question, what is this Zizek? There were several copies of a book called The Sublime Object of Ideology. Its author, Slavoj Zizek, positively identified as a male philosopher uh, uh, at the Institute for Sociology in Ljubljana. Uh, Further information gleaned from the cover was that this was his first book in English. There were already some in French. uh, And that it had only just been published a month or two earlier. So feeling a little better now that I knew this Zizek was a quite recent phenomenon, at least on our side of the Atlantic, I bought the book, took it home, and began reading. But that only made everything worse again. For the intimidating colleague, had been absolutely right about my belatedness and unoriginality. There was nothing I had written or tried to write or imagined writing about the relationship between humor and politics not already expressed with far greater force and complexity and clarity here in this damnable book. Here were Freud's Jewish jokes, Hegel's dialectical jokes, uh, Lewis Carroll's vegetable jokes, all manner of popular Russian and Yugoslavian jokes about Stalinism, all brilliantly cracked open by an analysis that presented, uh, sorry, that, 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 that pushed Marxism into uh, an altogether new and difficult conversation with psychoanalysis. Here, beautifully complete, was the inchoate project I had wanted to claim as my own that of unpacking the political logic of the joke and, conversely, locating the joke work at the core of ideology. Well, at some point uh, during that first reading, of that great book, uh, these initial responses of professional angst and petty jealousy um, did give way to to the rising sense uh, one has of excitement um, when discovering a really important new writer and embarking on an intellectual itinerary that forces a rearrangement of one's earlier ideas. And in this case, there was also, to a rare degree, in, in my reading in critical theory, and if I may say so, especially in Lacanian theory, Uh, There was also a great yield of pleasure, a joy in experiencing the voice or style of Zizek, which manages to install an explosive wit at the heart of a rhetoric of left political commitment. Here was a continental philosopher who could make you laugh out loud, who produced one surprising, giddy turn or tilt after another, who was always up to something and was never boring. In truth, the sublime object of ideology was a godsend for me at that point. Even just from this first in English of his many books, I learned an enormous amount. And one of the first and most immediately useful things I learned from it was that critique may be negated through affirmation, through the trick of denial by repetition, which is to say that after reading the book, I had a way of fending off any further challenge from colleagues who asked me too many difficult questions about my manuscript on politics and humor. I would describe the project in a general way, and then I would say, of course, my theoretical coordinates are derived from Zizek. (laughs) Worked like a charm. All right, that was 1989, um, a long time ago. Since that moment, Slavoj Zizek has published something like 50 books and pamphlets, including such classics of postmodern theory as Tarrying with the Negative, The Fragile Absolute, Enjoy Your Symptom, most recently Living in the End Times, He and his work have been the subject of more than a dozen monographs, a couple of films, several hundred articles in the fields of critical sociology, cultural studies, and of course, film theory. Currently professor at the European Graduate School and director of the Institute for Humanities at Birkbeck College London, he has been a professor or scholar in residence at, so it seems, half the universities in Europe and North America. He has crossed over, as we say, into the domain of the public intellectual, climbing high on those media lists of the world's most influential and celebrated thinkers, but uh, using that elevation in admirably mischievous and irreverent ways. Zizek's prodigious publications and lectures confound easy summary. Though a systematic thinker, he hasn't handed us a grand system. He hasn't founded a school or put out a call for disciples and acolytes. Yet, if you have read around in his work, you know that the adjective Zizekian points to something as consistently present and as distinctive in his writings as what is Kafkin in Kafkas. Uh, and I don't mean only the matter of style. I'm talking also about a steadfast intellectual disposition through a period, uh, post-modernism if you like, or, or late capitalism, a period when many critics have been giving up on critique. Despairing of ever getting around the wiles of capital, the monstrous ironies of our times, the cynicism so comprehensive that even the tools of critical theory are somehow rendered cynical in our own hands. We know that they don't work on society, but maybe they'll still work to advance our careers. Through this period of critique's presumptive exhaustion, Žižek has been its indefatigable reinventor, articulating fresh insights again and again through Marx and Freud and Lacan and producing therefrom stratagems for a repoliticization of our commoditized world. Reading Žižek one feels less hopeless, less ready to accept the inevitability or imperishability of the contemporary order of things. This afternoon, Professor Žižek will address our topic of virtuality by posing the question are catastrophes virtual? Please join me in welcoming to Penn Humanities Forum our very distinguished guest Slavoj Žižek.
1: Here. It's, okay. it's okay. I will stay okay. Here. Thanks very much for all of you coming here, all the distinguished guests, and uh, especially for this kind introduction, which is too kind. I feel threatened by it. You know why? Because if you were still in that envious age, that would have been a good sign. My idea is that the moment you are ready to praise a colleague, no matter how excessively you praise him or her, it means you already feel safe and above him, you know. <laughs> so it means, yeah, yeah, when I was young, basically your message was, yeah, yeah, when I was young, I was stupid enough to be duped by me, but now I'm up there, no, I mean, no. And, uh, so, Okay, thanks for claiming that I'm, I'm uh, never boring and so on, so we can rely on that today. I will try to surprise you and uh, be boring. Seriously, I want to do some simple but a little bit more systematic line. Let me begin by Jorge Semprun, a survivor of concentration camps in World War II and a Spanish writer. He reports in his memoirs how he witnessed the arrival of a truckload of Polish Jews at Buchenwald concentration camp. They were stacked into the freight train, almost 200 to a car, traveling for days without food and water in the coldest winter of the world. Had for except for 15 children, kept warm by the others in the center of the bundle of bodies. When the children were emptied from the car, the Nazi guards let their dogs loose on them. Soon only two fleeing children were left. And then a quote from Jorge Semprun: The little one of the two children began to fall behind. The SS guards were hauling behind them and then the dogs began to haul too. The smell of blood was driving them mad. And then the bigger of the two children slowed his pace to take the hand of the smaller. Together they covered a few more yards. Till the blows of the clubs felt them, and together they dropped, their faces to the ground, their hands clasped for all eternity. What should not escape our attention is that the freeze of eternity is embodied in the hand as a partial object while the bodies of the two boys perish the clasp hands persists for all all eternity like the smile of the cheshire cat from lewis carroll one can easily imagine how this scene should be filmed while at least i would have filmed it in that way while the soundtrack renders what goes on in reality The two children are clapped to death, torn apart by the dogs, and so on. The image of their hands clasped of their freezes, immobilized for eternity. While the sound renders temporary reality, the brutal murder of the two boys, the image renders the eternal real. It is the pure surface of such fixed images not any deeper meaning which allows for redemptive moments in the bleak story of the Holocaust. The frozen image which insists over reality, rendered by sounds, reality, stands for a positive ethical utopia of eternity. So that's my first point. This image is real and at the same time virtual. And here I'm an unashamed platonist. I think that Plato just has to be corrected the way Lacan Lacan suggests. A platonic idea is not some deeper substantial reality. It's just, you know, when an, an, an unexpected miraculous ethical act occurs. Like here, the older boy gathering the courage at the moment practically of dying, of stepping back, holding the other guy's hand. This frozen image, this is eternity, this is the real, in a way more real than the vulgar reality, it is real as virtual. What does this mean? To explain a little bit how this works, I want to recall the old Catholic strategy to guard men against the temptation of the flesh. I think that medieval monks developed this if you were tempted too much. They told you, when you see in front of you a voluptuous feminine body, imagine how it will look in a couple of decades. The dried skin, sagging breasts, and so on and so on. Or even better, imagine what lurks now already beneath the skin. Raw flesh and bones, inner fluids, half-digested food, excrements, and so on and so on. Now, far from enacting a return to the real, destined to break the imaginary spell of the body. Such a procedure, I claim, equals the escape from the real, the real which announces itself in the seductive appearance of the naked body. That is to say, in the opposition between the spectral appearance of a sexualized body and the repulsive body in decay, it is the spectral appearance which is the real and the decaying body which is reality. We take recourse to the decaying body in order to avoid the deadly fascination of the real, which threatens to draw us into its vortex of jouissance, of excessive pleasure. One should even, I think, turn around the usual opposition of true art and as deep and commercial kitsch as superficial. The problem with kitsch is that it is all too profound manipulating deep libidinal and ideological forces, while true art knows how to remain at the surface, how to subtract its subject from its deepest context of historical uh, reality. The same goes maybe for contemporary art, where we often encounter brutal attempts, at least in the 80s, 90s, maybe not so much today, to return to the real, to remind the spectator or reader that he is perceiving a fiction, to awaken him from a sweet dream. This gesture has two main forms, which, although opposed, amount to the same. In literature on cinema, there are, especially in postmodern texts, Self-reflexive reminders that what we are watching is a mere fiction, like the actors on screen addressing us directly as spectators, thus ruining the illusion of the autonomous space of the narrative fiction, or the writer directly intervening into the narrative through ironic comments. In theater, there are occasional brutal events which awaken us to the reality of the stage. Like when I was young, it was fashionable, I don't know, to slaughter a chicken on stage, allegedly to shock you. You are aware that this is just a fiction and so on. But instead of conferring on these gestures a kind of Brechtian dignity, perceiving them, it was fashionable to say this when I was young, as versions of extraneation, of being liberated of this uh, ideological imaginary fixation, one should rather denounce them for what they are. The exact opposite of what they claim to be, escapes from the real, Desperate attempts to avoid the real of the illusion itself—the real that emerges in the guise of an illusory spectacle. So this is the first point of clarification. I think which is very important because, for example, take the classical book. It was written already some 15, 20 years ago. I think uh, uh, how is he called? Uh, Foster, no, *The Return of the Real*. I think the processes he describes in postmodern art again art are the exact opposite I hope you got my point for example when you are in an erotic trance the real is the surface that the real is that absolute compulsion or pulsion pulsion, uh, in the sense of drive which transfixes you on the beloved image of your beloved of sexual object for all time and again there is nothing transgressive, I claim, in saying, "Oh, oh, oh, cool down! Remember, again, to repeat my vulgar lines. Beneath the skin, there are intestines. Shit is collecting there, and so on and so on." That's the, this is wisdom. I think wisdom is the great enemy of the real. You know, wisdom in the sense of, "Oh, when the king sleeps, or whatever, or when I don't know, a nice woman, whom or boy, whom you tried to kiss." blurbs or something like that, something vulgar. No, there is nothing uh, sublime going on here. So how do these virtual eternal moments relate to our ethical experience? I think that this dimension, as it were, of eternity is necessary to supply the big motive of postmodern ethics, the precariousness, fragility, finitude of a human being. The Polish philosopher Leszek Kolakowski wrote that man can be a moral being only insofar as he is weak, limited, fragile, and with a broken heart. This is, I think, the liberal core of also of Emmanuel Levinas, to which Judith Butler also subscribes, when she focuses on the fragile symbolic status of a human subject, caught in the abyss of dissentered, representations, a being whose very identity hinges on an external inconsistent network. It is this precarious status of subjectivity, which, according to Levinas and Butler here, they agree, accounts for the zero level of all ethics, the absolute call, injunction, emanating from a vulnerable neighbor's face. An ethical sub- means to explain singularity of responding to this call even if one chooses to ignore it, you already respond to it. From a Christian perspective, we should go to the end here. is created on God's image. The becoming man of God means that the same goes for God. In Christ, God becomes a fragile absolute, precarious, vulnerable, even impotent. The first thing to take note here, nonetheless, is the basic asymmetry of the situation. The other's face makes an unconditional demand on me i did not ask for it i am not allowed to refuse it and of course what levinas means by face is not directly the physical face a face can also be a mask for the face there is no direct representation of the face this demand is the real which cannot be captured by any words it marks the limits of language every translation into language already distorts it It is not simply external to discourse, it is its inner limit, the encounter with the other which opens up the space for discourse, since there is no discourse without the other. It is the real of a violent encounter which throws me off my existence as simple human animal. The irony here is that with... Judith Butler, the way she describes this encounter of the other in its precariousness and fragility, mortality, and so on, that this description has exactly the same structure as in Alain Badiou, the structure of immortality, eternity. And Butler is fully justified to emphasize that this ethical injunction, this encounter of the other, as fragile and so on, uh, is at its most basic level A reaction to the quasi-automatic reaction to get rid of the other neighbor, to kill him. This urge can be easily accounted for in Lacanian terms as the basic reaction to the encounter of the intrusive neighbor thing. A quote from Judith Butler's Precarious Life. If the first impulse towards the other's vulnerability is the desire to kill, The ethical injunction is precisely to militate against that first impulse. In psychoanalytic terms, that would mean marshaling the desire to kill in the service of an internal desire to kill one's own aggression and sense of priority. The result would probably be neurotic, but, now listen carefully, but it may be that psychoanalysis meets a limit here. For Levinas, it is the ethical itself that gets one out of the circuitry of bad conscience. The logic by which the prohibition against aggression becomes the internal conduit for aggression itself. Aggression is then turned back upon oneself in the form of super-egoic cruelty. If the ethical moves us beyond bad conscience, it is because bad conscience is, after all, only a negative version of narcissism and so still a form of narcissism the face of the other comes to me from outside and interrupts the narcissistic circuit end of quote i think that something is terribly wrong here psychoanalysis is constrained by judith butler to the narcissistic economy of egotistic aggression and its super ego reversal and then of course The conclusion imposes itself that the proper dimension of the ethical is outside the scope of psychoanalysis, that, as she put it, psychoanalysis meets a limit here. Psychoanalysis can only read the ethical dimension as the neurotic masochistic reversal of narcissistic aggressivity. I claim that uh, in a typical philosophical gesture, she first brutally simplifies psychoanalysis to make her point. Because for Freud and Lacan, as was convincingly elaborated also by Jean Laplanche, the traumatic encounter of the other as desiring, which interrupts the narcissistic circuit, is precisely the basic experience constitutive of desiring subjectivity. Which is why for Lacan, desire is a desire of the other. This is why Lacan's ethics of psychoanalysis stands for his attempt to demonstrate that there is an ethical dimension discovered in the psychoanalytic experience, a dimension which has nothing whatsoever to do with any kind of reduction of the higher ethical sphere to lower neurotic libidinal vicissitudes. Lacan's option is neither the aggressive thrust to annihilate the other nor its reversal into accepting the other as the source of an unconditional ethical injunction why not what one should take note of is that in Levinas it is not me who experiences himself or herself as precarious it is always the other who is addressing me as precarious this is why in my very asymmetric subordination to the other's call in my unconditional responsibility in my being taken hostage by the other i assume supremacy over the other do we not encounter this wounded precarious other almost daily in the ads for charity which bombard us with images of starved disfigured children crying in agony far from undermining the hegemonic ideology such ads are one of its exemplary manifestations Butler shows how face itself can function as an instrument of dehumanization, like the faces of evil fundamentalists, Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, and how the power regime also decides which faces are allowed uh, to be seen as worthy of grief and mourning and which are not allowed to function like this. it was the pictures she claims for example of the children burning of dying from napalm that generated the ethical outrage in the large united states public and helped ending the vietnam war what one should nonetheless add is that today the very fragility of the suffering other is part of the humanitarian ideological offensive images of sick and starving children from Africa abound or on our screen. So again, all this founding of ethics in, you know, this fragility of the other staring back at you and so on, has its obverse, which, which I disagree, it is that, okay, the other is good insofar as it is vulnerable, precarious and so on and so on. The moment the other doesn't want to play this role but organizes itself It becomes a terrorist, a fundamentalist, and so on, and so on. We all love these weak others, helpless, disfigured children, whom, as Starbucks ads put it, you can save by buying a cup of cappuccino with them, and so on, and so on. So again, we live in, I will try to develop this later a little bit. We live in very interesting ideological times today. You should always bear in mind this, that, you know, when I was young, it was still the standard leftist ideology, which was we in relatively prosperous Western countries, we live in our ivory tower of false welfare, but outside there are starving others and so on and so on. Today, this is the ruling ideology. Bill Gates is saying this all the time. What is the meaning of who cares about computers when people are still starving of diarrhea in Africa and so on and so on. And this has a precise ideological function, I claim. First, it is an emergency state logic to prevent politicization. Because then when you listen to Bill Gates and all those guys, the story always goes on. So let us stop with our stupid ideological issues, critique of capitalism, whatever. People are suffering there. Forget about politics and ideology. Let's all get together, private business, state, charity, let's just do something and help them. It is precisely a call to do something and don't think. Don't think, don't politicize, do something. The other thing, and I think this, is so unique about today's more and more functioning of publicity, which is why I really think that Starbucks is the the example of today's ideology. Is that you remember when we were young, at least that's my case, we still had this split between private consumerism and doing something for the community. Like, you know, privately you are spending money, blah, 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 then I don't know, you engage in some charitable activity or so. The uniqueness of Starbucks is a kind of a pseudo-Hegelian dialectical synthesis. No? The uniqueness of Starbucks, among others, is that uh, you can do both in one and the same gesture. As it were, their, as they just read what they say in their ads. their coffee is more expensive because the humanitarian... Uh, moment is included into it. You know, as they say, we buy our coffee only organically grown, it's organically grown, we give part of profit to help the children to get school, to help them to get water. It's as if telling you, you feel guilty about being a consumerist, no problem, pay a little bit more and the price for it is included into it. So that, you know, and the message is wonderful pay half a dollar more for coffee and we guarantee you that by being a consumerist, you already do your anti-consumerist duty. You know, you, you cancel the effects. And it would be nice, it may sound cynical, but I think it's fundamental to read charitable activity, even green, much of green ecological activity like this today. How? The point is not really to help nature, the poor. The point is to make you feel good while you consume. That's the extra price that you pay. For example, let me be very brutal, I'm often attacked for this, but when people like to buy organic apples, do you really believe that those apples are so much better? I don't think that those half-rotten apples which cost double are... No, I think the the reason you buy them is for pure you buy ideology there you know i pay more but isn't it wonderful this makes me a member of self-conscious humanity doing something for the mother earth it makes you feel warm you know like i do something for mother earth i'm part of the great movement you are buying this ideological dimension but nonetheless let us go on so uh the first point being i I don't like all this logic of, you know, I claim that this priority of the vulnerable precarious other uh, involves a certain constellation which still allows you to retain priority. Second point, I want to focus on what is excluded from (coughs) this... (coughs) vulnerable other. Here I give all the honour to Jacques Derrida, who in one of his late books on uh, animals uh, uh, that animal uh, said animal que je suis, the animal that I am, of course the paraphrase of Descartes uh, uh, where he focuses on another gaze, which typically is, as Derrida emphasises, excluded, explicitly excluded by Levinas. The gaze of a wounded, suffering animal. Derrida begins his exploration of this phenomenon with reporting on a kind of primordial scene from his own life. After awakening, he goes naked to his bathroom where his cat follows him. Then the awkward moment occurs. He is standing in front of the cat which looks at his naked body. Unable to endure this situation, he does something puts a towel around his waist, chases the cat outside, enters the shower, and so on. The cat's gaze stands here for the gaze of the other, an inhuman gaze, but for this reason, all the more, the other's gaze in all its abyssal impenetrability. Seeing oneself being seen by an animal is an abyssal encounter of the other's gaze. Since, precisely because we should not simply project onto the animal our inner experience something is returning the gaze which is radically other and I think Derrida is right in pointing out that the entire history of philosophy is based upon a disavowal of such an encounter I remember here I will be very personal seeing years ago a photo of a cat after it was submitted to some lab experiments in a centrifuge. Its bones half broken, its skin half hairless, her eyes helplessly looking into the camera. This is the gaze of the other disavowed not only by philosophers but by humans as such. Uh, one of the few exceptions is here he should be honored. Jeremiah Bentham, who made the simple proposal, instead of asking, can animals reason and think, can they talk? You know, all these boring philosophical questions to which then you have all these series of binary oppositions, like we humans can really talk, animals just exchange signs. We live in a world, animals are wordless. Or the Heideggerian version, we relate to that, animals are not really dying, or even Lacan's version. We, animals, can cheat, but only we humans can cheat to cheat. Like, what the animal that La Concedia can't do is... Let's say you expect me to lie, so I can dupe you by telling the truth, counting on the fact that you will think it's a lie. You know, the old story of... Freudian joke, why are you telling me you're going to Krakow when you are really going to to Krakow? So, again, instead of asking this question, Jeremiah Bentham claims we should rather ask a simple question, can they, the animals, suffer? Human industry alone is continuously causing immense suffering of animals, which is systematically disavowed. Not only laboratory experiments, but special regimes to produce eggs and milk, like turning artificial light on and off to shorten or lengthen the day, use of hormones, and so on. Pigs, who are half blind and barely able to walk, just fattened fast to be slaughtered, and so on and so on. Uh, all of us knows what goes on. Know what goes on here. But this knowledge has to be neutralized so that we can act as if we don't know. One of the ways to facilitate this ignorance is the Cartesian notion of animal machine. Cartesians were warning people against compassion with animals. The idea is that when we see an animal emitting sounds of pain, we should always bear in mind that these sounds do not express any real inner feeling. Animals do not have souls, they are just sounds, these sounds, generated by a complex mechanism of muscles, bones, fluids, and so on, that you can clearly see through deception. The problem is that the notion of animal machine quickly ends up in Lametri's notion of Le Homme machine, of a human being as a machine. If you are a fully committed neurobiologist, Exactly the same claim can be made about sounds and gestures emitted by humans when they are in pain. There is no separate interior domain of soul, where the pain pain is really made. Uh, So, what should we do here? What if, that's my proposal, the perplexity of a human looking at a cat, what if this perplexity in the animal's gaze, tortured animal's gaze is the perplexity aroused by the monstrosity of the human being itself. What if a human sees in the abyss of the wounded animal's gaze, what he sees there reflected is his own monstrosity? Or, in Hegelian terms, what if instead of asking what is substance for subject, how can subject grasp the substance, we should ask the obverse question. What is the rise of the subject for pre-subjective substance? My favorite Catholic theologist, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, proposes such a reversal precisely apropos men and animals. Instead of asking what are animals for humans, for our experience, one should ask what man is for animals. In his lesser known essay, Everlasting Man, Chesterton makes a wonderful mental experiment along these lines imagining the monster that man might have seemed at first to the merely natural animals around him a quote from chesterton the simplest truth about man is that he is a very strange being almost in the sense of being a stranger on the earth in all sobriety he has much more of the external appearance of one bringing alien habits from another land than of a mere Growth of this one. Man has an unfair advantage and an unfair disadvantage. He cannot sleep in his own skin. He cannot trust his own instincts. He is at once a creator moving miraculous hands and fingers and a kind of cripple. He is wrapped in artificial bandages called clothes. He is propped on artificial crutches called furniture. His mind has the same doubtful liberties and the same wild limitations. Alone among the animals, man is shaken with the beautiful madness called laughter. Again, another distinction of which I am not so sure. As if he had caught sight of some secret in the very shape of the universe, hidden from the universe itself. Alone among the animals, man feels the need of averting his thought from the root realities of his own bodily being. Whether we praise this thing as natural to men or abuse them as artificial in nature, they remain in the same sense unique. So what I'm saying is that uh, I'm not, definitely not trying to convince you into some new age attitude of, you know, in the animal gaze we see how animals feel the same as us, understand us, and then you end up with all this bullshit of trees secretly talk among themselves and so on. No, but what I'm saying is that, nonetheless, it's much sad. Is that uh, if you turn around the perspective and ask simply yourself, not what the end, an- not what does it mean for you this gaze of the frightened animal, but what the animal, uh, what, but what do you see? Do you see in the animal's gaze? I think you see your own monstrosity. You see precisely that which philosophers don't want to see. In short, I cannot develop it now, read my next book and so on, the 51st that you have said. Uh, uh, you, see, you see what Freud called death drive. You see that excessive violence of which good philosophers were aware. For example, just briefly, Immanuel Kant has a wonderful... Uh, text small text unknown on education where he provides his famous definition of what is man man is an animal who needs a master and then he explains why he says that there is a kind of he uses the term which is usually translated as unruliness a kind of wild, irrational excess of violent freedom in men which animals don't have this is why animals don't need education so Kant is here very precise. He, he's not saying uh, that it's the nature in man which has to be educated. It's precisely, let's call it a nature turned against itself, an excess of wild freedom, and maybe this is what animals see in ourselves. I mean, you know, this is always the question to ask, if you want to be good Hegelians, and I am. Uh, for example, instead of asking, do Christians treat properly Judaism? And then you get these rather boring debates of uh, usually defending Judaism in the sense of, oh, Christian notion of love misses the point, anxiety of God in Judaism. A much more interesting question is, what were the first Christians in the eyes of the Jewish establishment? What monsters they were? What monstrous excess, this what? Always, this is the question to be asked. Uh, We have a similar example. Do you remember some three years ago, I think, uh, some explorers deep in Argentinian jungle did it was reproduced in all media, a photo of some tribe which was not yet uh, touched by our so-called civilization. It was the first contact. And you see in color those frightened faces looking us we see our monstrosity there so just we have to be aware of this dimension but again where is this monstrosity now i come to the crucial part i think that uh, the next step is to locate properly our monstrosity which is not the simple egotistic violence and so on whatever but a more systemic one What do I mean by this? When in his Christmas message on December 2008, the Pope said that if humanity did not learn to overcome its egotism, human history would end in self-destruction, he not only stated a moralistic platitude, but also uttered a clear lie, falsity. Let us accept that The two principal dangers today are unbridled capitalism and religious fundamentalism. But as an even superficial analysis of fundamentalist subjectivity makes it clear, so-called fundamentalists are not egotists, but quite on the contrary, ruthlessly dedicated to a transcendent goal, ready to sacrifice everything, their lives included for it. As for capitalism, one could also show that its over expanding circulation cannot be reduced to the capitalists' egotistic striving for more and more profit. A parallel of the structure of the capital with Dawkins' notion of MEM you know like based on gene mem can be of some help here. A MEM unit of memory spreads neither because of its actual beneficial effects upon its bearers, say, those who adopt. A MEM in some intellectual idea unit are more successful in life, and thus gain an upper hand in the struggle for survival, nor because of its characteristics which make it subjectively attractive to its bearers. Like a computer virus, the MEM proliferates simply by programming its own retransmission. What is so unsettling about this notion is that we humans endowed with minds, wills, and an experience of meaning are nonetheless unwitting victims of a thought contagion which operates blindly, spreading itself like a computer virus. No wonder that when talking about MEM, Daniel Dennett regularly resorts to the same metaphors as Lacan apropos language. In both cases, we are dealing with a parasite which Penetrates and occupies the human individual, using it for its own purposes. And indeed, does memetics not rediscover the notion of a specific symbolic level which operates outside the standard couple of objective biological facts and subjective experience? In a liminal case, an idea can spread, even if, in the long term, it brings only destruction to its bearers, and is even experienced as unattractive. So, where is here the parallel with capital? In the same way that MEM, misperceived by us, subjects, as means of our communication, effectively run the show, they use us to reproduce and multiply themselves, the productive forces which appear to us as means to satisfy our needs and desires, effectively run things. The true aim of the capitalist process of production is the development of productive forces and the satisfaction of our needs is effectively just the means for the development of productive forces. Consequently, one should not say that capitalism is sustained by the selfish greed of individual capitalists for more power and health. This greed itself is subordinated to the impersonal striving of capital to reproduce and to expand. One is thus almost tempted to say that what we really need is more, not less, egotism. Take the ecological threat. No pseudo-animistic love for nature is needed to act here. Just a long-term egotistic interest. In Lacanian terms, one can determine the distinction between individual greed and this striving of capital, to reproduce and to expand as the difference of desire and drive. Apropos the financial breakdown of 2008, Paul Krugman made a very nice observation. I quote him. If we could spin a time machine back to 2004 so that people could ask themselves whether to exercise caution or to follow uh, the herd, most of them would still follow the herd." in spite of knowing that there will be a breakdown." end of quote. This, I think, is crucial for this memetic, automatic uh, functioning of ideology today. The irrationality of capitalist rationalism, the counter-productivity of capitalist productivism, are known for a long time. They were analyzed in detail by Frankfurt School and many others. But, uh, when the same topic is resuscitated today, it is not just in order to return to the past. Today we are able to add a crucial reflexive twist. Let me quote from a work by French theorist of rationality, Jean-Pierre Dupuy. Quote, what is new and different today is precisely the fact that 30 years later we know that the knowledge we already possessed was in no way sufficient to make us change our behavior. This fact is not a minor detail, it constitutes a key element of the problem. In 1960-70, it was more simple to believe that another world is possible. This is why these years continue to inspire so much nostalgia. At which epoch, at this epoch, one could still imagine that the warnings based on the present situation could influence in a positive way the future. Today, we know it. The future is not what it was. End of quote. Therein resides the lesson of the failure of the traditional critique of ideology. Knowing is not enough. One can know what one is doing and still do it. The reason is that such knowledge operates under the conditions of fetishist disavowal. One knows, but one doesn't really believe what one knows. So the problem is how to make this knowledge uh, Operative. Or, to put it in another way, there is no lack of anti-capitalism today. We are even witnessing an overload of the critique of the horrors of capitalism. Books, newspapers... In depth investigations, TV reports abound on companies ruthlessly polluting our environment, on corrupted bankers who continue to get Fed bonuses while their banks have to be saved by public money, of sweatshops where children work overtime and so on and so on. There is, however, a catch to all this overflow of critique. What is as a rule not questioned is in this critique ruthless, as it may appear, is the democratic liberal frame of fighting against excesses. The explicit or implicit goal is to democratize capitalism, to extend the democratic control onto economy through the pressure of the public media, parliamentary inquiries, harsher laws, and so on, but never to question the institutional frame of the state of law. This remains the sacred cow even for the most radical forms of this kind of ethical anti capitalism like the Porto Alegre, Seattle movement and so on, it is here, I think, that Marx's key insight remains valid today, perhaps more than ever. For Marx, the question of freedom is not located primarily into the political sphere proper does a country have free elections are the judges independent is the press free from hidden pressures are human rights respected and similar list of questions different independent and not so independent western institutions apply when they want to pronounce a judgment on a country the key to freedom for marx is in the apolitical network of social relations from market to family where The change needed if we want an actual improvement is not just a political reform but a change in social relations which appear apolitical, which means a change which cannot be done through democratic political procedures, elections and in the narrow sense of the term. We do not vote who owns what. We do not vote about relations in a factory. All this is left to processes outside the narrow sphere of the political. Radical changes in this domain should be made outside the legal sphere. Uh, And again, I think this is the tragic limitation we have to overcome. This limitation of the legal democratic approach was clearly visible in the case of the recent Bay of Mexico oil spill oil spill here in the states what was unfortunately ridiculous in president obama's whom i still deeply respect reaction was the idea that a private company no matter how rich can pay for the damage of a serious ecological catastrophe which reaches even over the u.s population and potentially shatters the fundaments of our way of life the search for the guilty agent who should be made legally responsible for the damage is part of our legalistic frame of mind. People can and do sue fast food chains as responsible for their obesity. Ideas circulate about slavery reparations, arguing that compensation is long overdue uh, and so on. Uh, what is fundamentally wrong with this logic is not that it's too radical, but that it's not radical enough the true task is not to get compensation from those responsible but to change the situation so that they will no longer be in a position to cause damage or push towards this kind of activity which causes damage i think this is what was lacking in obama's reaction you know all these rhetorics i will kick british petroleum in the ass, and uh, they will, i will make them pay sorry but when we are talking about such a catastrophe it, it reaches beyond this logic. It's ridiculous for me to talk about paying. The first thing to note is that, my God, even if maybe, I don't know, BP was a little bit worse than other companies, but it could have happened probably to another company. So the problem is not British Petroleum. The problem is a more global general one, and which again compels us to ask fundamental questions about our way of life and so on and so on. Uh, And that's our situation today. Risks are exploding everywhere and we rely on scientists to cope with them. Here lies the problem. Scientific experts are supposed to know, but they do not know. The spread of science in our societies has two unexpected features. We more and more rely on experts even in the most intimate domains of our experience, sexuality, religion. But this all presence of science transforms scientific knowledge into an inconsistent field of multiple opinions. The symptom here is, did you notice, the use of a very weird term for somebody educated in traditional science, expert opinion. Sorry, but when I was young, we ordinary people had opinions experts simply told us this is how it really is today we have expert opinions uh, the paradigmatic category which reveals this helplessness of science is the category of limit value you know this is a nice mode of of uh, scientific fetishization as if you know we are told if the global warming Apropos global warming, if the temperature we go out will go out more than two degrees, then uh, it's catastrophe. But are we aware that these are purely contingent fixations, which really, uh, which really don't mean anything? What is the problem here? Uh, our growing freedom and control over nature, our survival itself, depend on a series of stable natural parameters which we automatically take for granted temperature, composition of the air, sufficient water, energy supply and so on We can do what we want only insofar as we remain marginal enough so that we don't seriously perturb the parameters of the life on Earth This limitation of our freedom becomes palpable with ecological disturbances which Disturbances which are the outcome of the very exponential growth of our freedom and power. Our growing ability to transform nature around us can destabilize the very basic geological parameters of the life on Earth. The fact that humankind is becoming a geological agent on the Earth indicates that, as some geologists think, a new geological era is beginning. Some scientists call it Anthropocene. For example, with the recent devastating earthquakes in the interior of China. What's the problem there? There are good reasons to think that the main cause, or at least of at least the unexpected strength of these earthquakes, was the construction of the gigantic Three Gorges dams nearby, which resulted in large new artificial lakes. The additional pressure on the surface of the earth seems to influence the balance of the underground cliffs and thus contribute to the earthquake. So even something as elementary as the earthquake could be included into the scope of phenomena influenced by human activity. But wait a minute, I'm now. the situation is even more complex. I'm now not preaching the idea that we humans are guilty for everything and so on. This is also a too easy way out. We like to be guilty, since if we are guilty, then it all depends on us, we pull the strings of the catastrophe, so we can also save ourselves by simply uh, changing our lives. What is really difficult for us to accept is that we are reduced to a purely passive role of an impotent observer who can only sit and watch what his fate will be. To avoid such a situation, we are prone to engage in frantic, obsessive activity. We recycle old paper. We buy organic food. I claim that we have here an interesting structure of fetishist disavowal. I claim that in ecology, we have two modes of disavowal. The, uh, one mode of disavowal is we don't take the catastrophe seriously. It's the je sais bien mais I know very well, but in the sense of. I know very well there is global warming but let's face it we don't in our guts how to put it we don't really believe it you know some stupid scientists i admire them is telling you oh global warming you agree with him then you go out you see the sun uh, uh, the sun the wind the trees and you say my god can this really change it cannot the conclusion from this is pretty paradoxical i claim it is that I'm here totally opposed to uh, so-called deep ecology, which claims we are too alienated by science, uh, reducing nature to an object of scientific manipulation, domination. We need to regain our being, beings of the earth breeding together with our environs. No, I claim that is the source of the catastrophe. We can do horrible things, we don't know, probably through science manipulation, but we are not ready to accept the consequences precisely because we are still, as it were, wired to the earth. I think we need more denaturalization. We have to bear in mind the utter fragility of nature. We have to get radically rid of, this, of the ideas of nature as, you know, mother earth, uh, uh, kind of a, uh, uh, caught in some kind of a harmonious uh, circulation, stability, homeostasis, and so on, which we humans have, with our hubris, have undermined. I mean, Earth is a horror, nature is a horror also. Think about oil. Can you imagine what kind of catastrophes there must have been on our Earth so that we have oil supplies, and so on? Now, the message of this is not, oh, since there is no natural balance, we can do whatever we want. No, 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 I'm for radical ecology. But the point is that the situation is much more tense. We cannot even fall back on some firm standard, like we just have to return to dot points. There is no balance. This is, I think, the lesson of the good dialectical Darwinists like Stephen Jay Gould. There is no evolution there is no natural balance nature itself is a series nature itself is a series of uh, catastrophes so again one problem with ecology is that we know it there is a threat of catastrophe but we don't really accept it we in a way don't believe it the situation is here the same as the one wonderfully described by Bergson and others at the outset of World War I. I mean, uh, politicians, everyone was drawing attention to it for 30 years from 1880s that the big European war is near, will explode. But people really didn't believe that it can happen. So that's one disavowal. But there is also the opposite disavowal, which also is interesting. Uh, Namely, the opposite one, we know that with some catastrophes, even if they are man-made, we as individuals cannot really do anything. But we are not ready to accept this totally passive position, so we like to engage in what I like to call pseudo-activity. You know, I think that, sorry if this hurts you, but I think that often when we recycle and buy organic food, it's a little bit like You know, when you have a baseball or soccer match, you watch it at home on TV and you shout, yes, do it, in this kind of superstitious activity, as if you know you are doing something to help your guys win. You know it's stupid, but you do it. I claim it's also, it's also, I claim, again, it's also that, it's also that dimension. Precisely this uh, pseudo, precisely this uh, pseudo- activity. So, to conclude, if you just allow me another five minutes, uh, uh, my first concluding point is that things are much too serious for such recycling games. Humanity should get ready to live in a much more plastic, nomadic way. What do I mean? Are we aware what is happening? Probably, in all probability, and I'm not saying 2012 will be the end of the world, I'm very... Much more optimistic here, but nonetheless, we are obviously approaching the time where large migrations will be, population migrations, will be necessary. And we are simply lacking proper mechanisms to do this. For example, in some parts of the world, the desert is spreading. On the other hand, we learned that because of global warming, the whole of northern Siberia in Russia will probably become much more inhabitable. Who will organize, how will it be done, these large movements of populations? In the past, this is nothing new in the history of humanity. It was often done. But how? True, spontaneous migration which meant millions of death war and so on and so on we know that we cannot afford this because of weapons of mass destruction and so on so we need some kind of a trans state global mechanism to regulate it who will do this and so on now you will probably say all this is utopia it can't be done it's impossible ah here Just to conclude, I have another nice point. Namely, did you notice how ambiguous the term impossible is today? How ambiguously it is used in our everyday ideological practice. On the one hand, concerning private pleasures, freedoms and scientific achievements, everything is possible. You know, we are told... I don't know, soon we will be able to uh, grow grow genetically, to grow organs, to live eternally, to have to download everything, to enhance our physical psychic activities and so on, whatever, to to travel to moon, whatever you want. So practically almost everything is possible. But but did you notice how at the same time when you touch social, social economic relations, more and more we are taught, oh, sorry, but 1980, the disintegration of communism was the end of utopias, we maturely accept, you know, the impossibility. It's like to be slightly ironic. They already make in New York, they cut your penis, you have two penises, you can screw yourself, turn it around, whatever you want. All this is possible, but a little bit of a change in healthcare is not possible. <laughs> That's a catastrophe. And maybe... Maybe, maybe, just maybe I'm saying the time has come, uh, uh, the, the time has come to change this, to claim maybe it's wise to allow a little bit more impossibilities in that region, maybe in spite of what some technological agnostics are telling us, we will nonetheless never really become like software just downloading ourselves to from one to another hardware and just survive eternally but maybe we can do something and we will have to do something at the uh, social ecological uh, level uh, this is what Lacan means by his notion of real impossible it's not this opportunistic impossible like oh you cannot touch it no no Lacan's point is uh, Lacan's point is not this cheap publicity, everything is possible, but from time to time impossible happens. Impossible means you do something which within the existing universe, ideological universe, appears impossible, but while doing it, you, as it were, create its own possibility. You do it as a crazy risky wager and through the act itself it becomes it becomes. Uh, possible. This is what we need. So let me really conclude now with just a simple duality. On the one, there is there are in French two words for future, and you find them also in German and in my own language, Slovene, but as far as I know, I don't think you find them in English. It's future and avenir. And I would like simply to conclude with this: Future stands for future as the continuation of the present, as the full actualization of the tendencies which are already here. While avenir points more towards a radical break, a, a discontinuity with the present. Avenir is what is to come, avenir, not just what will be. For example, if you say the future prime minister, it can be that it will be the same as now. But if you say in French, le premier ministre avenir, it doesn't mean the same. And I think that this is our fate today. In today's situation, the ultimate horizon of the future is what Dupuy and other theorists of catastrophes call The dystopian fixed point, some zero virtual zero point of ecological breakdown, global economic chaos, and so on, and so on. Even if it is uh, indefinitely postponed, this zero point is a kind of a virtual attractor towards which our reality left to itself tends. The way to combat the catastrophe is through acts which interrupt this drifting towards the fixed point and somehow open it up towards uh, another order. So, in this sense, I agree with the slogan, no future. There is no future in future. But there is something, uh, there is something, uh, there is something A uh, uh, veneer. What does this mean? Let me conclude maybe, if you to me, just with a funny story, a Jewish friend told me that... Uh, uh, you know, the problem of death penalty, that a rabbi had a solution that instead of directly prohibiting death penalty, which is a tricky thing, which always involves, then but there are some exceptions, you know, like no death except, and so on. And then, of course, you always find exceptions. Uh, this guy says that it would be much more productive to do the opposite, to say, of course, there should be death, death penalty, God allowed, it. how can we contradict God, but instead of outrightly prohibiting it, you should say, oh, that there must be death penalty, but for every particular situation to find an excuse, you know, like, death penalty in principle, I'm for it, but in every concrete case, I will, I will show you not here. And maybe this is the thing we should do. This is the intelligent catastrophe theory. We, and now I come nonetheless a little bit closer to the title, we should adopt catastrophe as this virtual point. It's, it's not if we play this cheap freedom in the sense, oh, it's just one of the possibilities. No, possibilities, we will do nothing. We should say, yes okay at the end if we bring the logic of the existing system to the end there is probably some kind of ecological social breakdown and so on but what i like is is to say okay this is our destiny but we can you know like the jewish advice we can indefinitely postpone it and so on and so on and at some point we can undermine it in this way i'm for much more I'm for much more modest modest attitude here. I claim that the only way to really fight the catastrophe is to admit it as a destiny. But you see my point, not destiny in the sense of natural necessity, but destiny precisely in the sense of symbolic destiny. The existing system, if it's left on its own, leads towards catastrophe. This doesn't mean that it will really arrive. It's a much nicer dialectical point, which is that destiny is inevitable, but what we can change is our very inevitable destiny. You will say, I'm crazy here. No, I will give you a convincing example. Think about capitalism and predestination. Isn't this a wonderful paradox? Did you notice it that if we accept this common sense idea that, and there is a truth in it, that uh, Protestantism is the religion of capitalism. If there ever was a social order social order which dynam- dynamize people's activity we are all caught in frantic activity it's capitalism wouldn't you expect then rather the thing to be opposite if everything is predestined why would you work all the time you sit down and masturbate watch pornography and wait everything is predestined but you see the nice paradox precisely because it's predestined you have to be active all the time why I think my friend Fred Jameson gave me this idea he told me that he likes to also to this this shocking propose he told me that if there is a concept which a Marxist should take from theology it's the concept of predestination this is the most dialectical concept it doesn't mean it's pre it is predestined but and we are not free within this destiny But we are free much more radically to change destiny itself. You know, I'm saying something similar here to what we always should learn from intelligent conservatives. To what T.S. Eliot said, you remember, when he said that every new work of art changes the entire past. And this is what I'm talking about. This is... The future. this is the new. For example, along these lines, you find a wonderful uh, example in Borges. You know when Borges said about Kafka, that ordinary writers rely on their predecessors. But Kafka created his own predecessors. Like, for example, of course, we can say there are elements for Kafka in Dostoevsky, Edgar Lampo, Milton, and so on. But we can see this only once Kafka is here. So in this very dialectical sense, destiny and freedom are not exclusive. We are caught in destiny. Destiny would be today's technological capitalist culture. And we cannot simply do it within this space of freedom. But maybe more radically producing something new, we can change the destiny itself. We have to do it. Otherwise, we live in a world where I wouldn't like to spend too much time. I'm very grateful for your patience. I was overwhelmed, thanks very much. Please, uh, yes.
0: Is this who works? Okay, great. Hi, uh, thank you. I, I wanted to know, when you were saying that this knowledge that we have of like global warming, all these types of things, that that knowledge does not actually affect the beliefs we have what would be the structure of belief, and and what would change beliefs fundamentally if knowledge and sort of um, logical constraints aren't enough to change those beliefs?
1: Uh, I, well, it's a good difficult question, but I even, I openly admit it, I don't have, if I were to have this answer, it would be the big answer, which would have changed everything. But on the other hand, of course, beliefs do change. What I only uh, mean is that I only can give you the theoretical background, which is, this fascinates me more and more. I'm sorry if I will now repeat some old jokes of mine. Maybe some of you know it. You know, this idea that, uh, already Descartes was aware of it, that we believe much more than we think. And our beliefs are not some deep Jungian sheet deep in us. Our beliefs are out there in our activity. We, we enact them. So sorry now to repeat the ultra joke that I repeat in every of my talks Niels Bohr you know this old joke probably you know it he was visited once by a friend in his country house and the friend noticed a horseshoe above the entrance to the house no and uh, this is, at least in Europe, a superstitious item. A horseshoe above the entrance allegedly prevents evil spirits entering the house. No? So he asked Niels Bohr, oh my God, I, I thought you were a scientist. Are you superstitious? Do you believe in this? And Bohr gave him a perfect answer. Of course, I'm not an idiot. I don't believe it, in it, that it works. But he said, I have it there because I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. No? Like, this is... This is our everyday life. We don't believe in democracy, you vote. You don't believe in law, you you know. This is what always fascinates me, how much more we believe in our activity. Here, I think, Freud and Marx, as I always repeat, are still of an incredible help. Contrary to what people think, Marx was aware of it when he emphasized that all the theory about commodity fetishism doesn't really cancel uh, fetishism in our actual life. So it's not a question of knowledge. Here, Marx should be read in a very precise way. I mean, don't misunderstand me. I'm very critical of Marx. I'm not fetishizing Marx and so on. But, but in his theory of commodity fetishism, there is still something worth reading. Namely, where is fetishism for Marx? It is not in what we believe. Marx doesn't propose this simplistic duality, haha, money is really just a means of social exchange, social product, but we idiots think money is something magical, a magical object. No, in our actual beliefs, we are British nominalists, we think money is just a sign which gives you an item right to a part of a social product, blah, blah. Fetishist belief is how we use and deal with money in our actual life itself. So when Marx says that ideology means Sie wissen das nicht aber sie tun es in German. They don't know what they are doing, but they are doing it. Marx does not mean this stupidity. Oh, we are doing something, but we don't know what we are doing. No. It's more twisted. What Marx says is we don't know what illusions we are actually following in what we are doing. It's a very nice structure where consciously you can know the truth. But uh, illusion is not in what you think as opposed to what you do. Illusion is materialized in your social activity, in what you do. And this is to come back to what I quoted Krugman and so on. What he was Aware. Even if we were to know in 2004 where it leads, we would still follow the illusions which are in our acts. So I agree with you. The big question is how, when do you change that? And uh, it's a, I, I do work on the answer, but you know, it's, I even doubt if it can be done as a conscious, as a conscious action because here here things are things are very mysterious in the sense of uh, you know here I'm this is why I'm so fascinated by Christianity because I think that something like this happens in Christianity in a good sense the Christian. Uh, we are all more or less today atheists, but at the same time, I claim we maybe believe more than ever. No, we just act on our beliefs. Today's ideology is usually cynical. No, you claim, "Oh, I don't care, I don't believe in anything," and so on and so on. But in practice, you act as if you believe. And I more and more think that maybe even not actually believing in it is not not only doesn't prevent things from functioning but it's maybe even a condition of it this is the traumatic lesson that I learned from my own political past in ex Yugoslavia where you know I am from Slovenia which is a small city Republic everybody knows everybody else which means no I want to say something very precise which means that for us general secretary of the party and so on this wasn't a person you see once a year on the screen this was a guy whom it was possible to meet on the street so we so i knew the situation and you know i noticed something very weird that uh, in order to become a member of nomenklatura top circle not only you didn't have to take seriously the ruling ideology but you it was obligatory not to take it seriously like you know i had two friends who were kind of a naive communist they really believed in self-management socialism and so on, they lost their jobs, because they were perceived by ruling nomenklatura as dangerous. So you see here how to really uh, interact. All this question of belief and so on, it's so, it's so much uh, mystified today. I claim it's crucial to take this into account that you know, the usual image we have is the ancient, the old people were naive, they believed it now we are more reflexive first i don't think the ancient whatever we mean by these people were naive you know a wonderful book by paul vane did the ancient greeks believe in their myths where he says of course they didn't i mean they were not stupid they didn't think if you go on the mount olympus you will see zeus screwing athena or whatever you know i mean they knew it. so how did they mean it how did they mean it the point is that today we believe More. That's why we need this, if I may be a little bit evil in a friendly way, towards my theoretical friend, all this uh, deconstructive jargon. For example, I'm on very good terms with her personally, but this is my ironic stab at her Judith Butler. She never forgave me for it. Namely, you know, Judith Butler is an intelligent person whom, if you were to ask her, what is this? And now I'm exaggerating, ironically. She would never have said, "This is a lamp." She would said, "If we strategically concede to the essentialist use of language, maybe we can risk the hypothesis, just strategically, that this is a lamp." No? <laughs> uh, now, but what is lost here is the fact that uh, all this uh, distanciation was for the ancient already included in saying this is a lamp. They didn't really mean it that this is a lamp. Like, again, to go back to Paul Vane, when an ancient Greek said, Greek said Zeus and so on, he didn't mean it, there is real Zeus. This distance was included. And the reason we have to add all these deconstructionist qualifications, no like have the terms often in the and quotation marks is that basically we are like for example umberto echo has a nice text about love where he said till now it was possible to say to your lover i love you now we are so afraid that we need a kind of a qualifying distanciation like as a poet would have put it i love you maybe i even love you or whatever but echo makes a very intelligent remark where he says but in the old days when somebody said i love you he meant all this these distances were included, so I claim today we are not more cynical, sophisticated. we are much more naive, afraid of this literal belief, which is why we had explicitly to include all these uh, uh, qualifications and so on and so on. So again, uh, uh, the precise question that you are asking I think that uh, I think that some more radical it's not a matter of uh, simply criticizing ideology raising consciousness etc there has to be beliefs these radical beliefs only change through some radical social transformations and so on it's not a matter of enlightening people or whatever and here i am very split by the phenomenon of today's religious fundamentalism like the idea being but they do really believe first i have my doubts i spoke with uh, some guy who is specialized in so-called terrorist psychology and he told me it's much more complex like if you take a typical terrorist who is ready to bomb himself no they are again not idiots nobody really believes you know what we read in our media oh if i bomb myself i awaken in paradise uh, 72 virgins. First, every Arab knows that this is a mistranslation, no? In original Koran, the term is the term for the best white grape dry raisins, no? And this was mistranslated as virgins. So if you want to be cynical, I like to imagine a terrorist, oh, I blow myself and then up there, he said, okay, here you have the, the raisins, no? And he said, ah, sorry, I want back a mistake, no? Uh, You know, uh, this psychologist told me very interesting thing that the the true reasoning of a suicide terrorist is more something like I'm not sure that I believe I can prove it to myself by exploding myself. It's a kind of a crazy wager in order to calm his own doubt. On the other hand, fundamentalists, I claim, are doing something Horrible, you know what drew my attention? Uh, this fact which maybe explains this a little bit. Did you notice how many fundamentalists or these religious sects use the word science, like Christian science and so on? This would be an interesting point, what science they mean. But I will immediately end, you know, But uh, my point is that effectively, this is why many fundamentalists do not have problems with uh, science. They, I think they are not believers, they know it, in some sense. In the sense that for them, for example, God God, uh, appeared, reincarnated, all the miracles, this has to be treated like scientific facts. They they treat, and this is a horrible thing, this is then no no longer a religious belief. Authentic religion more is what... My friend, an Italian priest told me, we talked about that Turin Shroud, no? And he told me, the most horrible thing that you can imagine for the church is to discover that this really is Christ's Shroud. Why? My God, you know what's the first thing to do then? Give me a little bit of blood and let us check it through DNA analysis who is Jesus Christ's father, really, no? then you probably get some religious, uh, sorry, some Egyptian slaves screwing Mary and so on. Uh, but uh, he, and he told me, no, 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 we don't want it. That you must have this uncertainty. For him this was a blasphemy to take, for example, Immaculate Conception as a fact. But I read some fundamentalists who claim no problem, they even have a hypothesis. Because if we do this, they claim because God doesn't have a DNA, it will be simply mary's dna redoubled you know, but you know what i mean like for authentic belief which is why i think that belief and atheism do not exclude each other belief for example if you believe in human dignity isn't there something totally crazy in it it's a kind of a real of it means people are fat thin stupid evil i nonetheless believe all of them have a certain dignity and so on. This is belief at its purest. It's always something absurd in an authentic, ethically engaged belief. And it's not a question even of of, of religion and so on. I like to quote, for example, tragic lines, everybody knows them, Anna Frank, precisely when she became aware of all the horrors of the nazis she wrote in her diary but nonetheless i believe there is something eternal and good in every human being this is belief at it is most authentic it's absolutely counterfactual and so on no so again i just wanted i know i didn't answer you i hope i did just confuse the issues no, a little thank bit you. sorry i speak too much let's do it one more that it will not be this stalinist stalinist dialogue of <laughs> And now you want me to do this Zen Buddhist bullshit, like, you ask me a complex question, I say, clap with one hand or some (laughs) wise thing like that, please.
0: Okay, Um, thanks. This last question? Oh, uh, Ah. I'll I'll put two. First, first simple. I would love to hear your take on the Tea Party in America, just in general, particularly as it relates to the expert culture. And yeah. I see it often. No, I know as kind about a, the parties. The only thing that I the... watch here
1: is Fox News, of course. Yes. The second so.
0: question is on ethics. In your, in your original points, you brought up some nice critiques of Butler and Levinas
1: yeah. and the kind of inauguration of ethics as the other sort of throwing the self
0: out of joint. Yeah. But then you brought in this interesting counter critique that the positing of a universal suffering other by Levinas and Butler is the same thing that liberals do with yeah. the other uh, and yeah. that, that whole thing. My question is, what's the best alternative? How should we see the other in in the ethical situation? I'm
1: opposed even to the notion of otherness. I'm for some kind of universal, I'm very old-fashioned here. I want to rehabilitate the notion of universal solidarity, which is not this abstract humanist solidarity, it's a solidarity of struggle. The, the, you, you know what is for me the other? Like I was in India. Let me tell you a story, which will amuse you. Sorry for two minutes. I had a wonderful time in India, where you know they have now a big Maoist rebellion, naxalites, no? And it confirmed. I encountered one of them. I was with my friend in a taxi, and we talked about politics. And the chauffeur didn't understand english but understood the word here and there and asked in their language not in english my friend uh, who was with me uh, like i heard the word the chauffeur asked him, salit you know the maoist rebellion like is your friend meaning me for or against and my friend said for basically which wasn't the wise thing to say in india they are outcasts but then uh, the guy was fascinated and It's a very mystical thing that happened, really, almost sacred. And stopped the car and asked me a riddle. And the riddle was pure, dirty, incredibly dirty obscenity, which I loved, of course. He asked me, you know the best-known image of uh, Gandhi, where late Gandhi in in his almost antique robe, he, with a big stick, he walks from one village to the other. No? What does this Photo mean. Now, I knew I solved the riddle. I knew it must be something extremely dirty. I tried to read it in a dirty and I guessed it. I told him it's obvious. It's kind of an anal sex call, like, I need a young guy to fuck me into my ass. If not, I will have to do it myself with the stick. <laughs> the guy was fascinated. He stepped out of the car, embraced me. He told me, you are one of us. And, ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, wait a minute, now comes the miracle. And then we started to talk, not exchanging dirty jokes, just serious political talk. But you see my point, this exchange of obscenity was a kind of a moment of solidarity, you know, in the sense of... We are not politically correct bullshitters, you know, who do that, ooh, I like your folkloric dances, I like your whatever, no. (laughs) To have authentic relation of the other, you have to have this moment of... uh, This was our, as Lacombe would have put it, surplus enjoyment, plus de jure. And then we didn't need it. Again, it wasn't then, oh, an orgy of dirty jokes. We talked, and... What I like is that how we were totally different cultures. If we were to pursue these boring UNESCO topics, you know, our culture, your culture, they are both great, let's look at what we have in common, it's nothing. But we discovered a common struggle. It worked all of a sudden, all these multicultural bullshit problems, uh, do I really, you know, this boring stuff, do I really understand you? How do I know that I really understand your culture and so on? I claim this is a pseudo-problem. Of course I don't, but you yourself also don't understand your culture, and I don't understand mine. Where we understand each other, it's in the struggle, the fight. That's the universality. Again, so what bothers me there with all the fragility stuff? Of course there is fragility. But I like to combine this fragility with this almost platonic moment of heroism. We may be fragile and so on, but... Not in the literal sense, but in this virtual sense, we are eternal. And at that, I count on those uh, sublime moments. So again, this this would have been my answer. I wouldn't like to live in a world where the ultimate ethical horizon is a broken, fragile, perplexed other. I like one step more, where you then don't redeem the other, patronize the other, even less. In this fake, politically correct reversals, liberals love this, to feel guilty in front of the other. We are doing something wrong. We pretend to be out of colonialism, but really, you know, and then this, if I say this, I say black, it's still incorrect. Then I say African-American, it's still incorrect. How should I say? These are obscene pseudo-problems. For example, you now call them them those whom we called once Indians, you call them Native Americans. The encounter of a lifetime, another one that I had is in Missoula, Montana. I met one of them and he told me, I hate the term uh, uh, Native Americans. As if you know, we are nature, you white are culture or what. He told me he prefers absolutely to be called Indian and he gave me a wonderful reason. He said, at least if I'm called Indian, My name is a monument to white men's stupidity, you know, who thought they are in India, no. I prefer to be Indian than Native American, like authentic, close to nature and so on. He was a wise guy. He totally, he said that the worst racism today is this, you know. Native Americans are holistic in dialogue with nature and so on. This is, he said, no, we screwed it up. We killed more buffaloes than you white guys did when you arrived. He tried to convince me, no, we already screwed up everything in the state. It was a wonderful, a wonderful experience of how he got it. How false is this, you know, white, it's as if white men, now that we are no longer white men's burden in the sense of, redeeming all others we still want to be at the top if we cannot be the top good guys we want at least be the top bad guys like you know you other races or whatever you may have difficult lives but You are not really guilty it's always still our imperialist manipulations which basically makes us feel good it sounds honest but basically it means you are too stupid even to be really bad you know it's really us who are doing it no here okay i stop
0: (laughs) i hope that made you feel better
1: thanks very much I'm sorry if I spoke too much, but please, uh, I will tell you something. Can I conclude with something which is really important?
0: Uh, we're on a schedule. No, no, very, very short. <laughs> okay.
1: You know, more in Europe than in United States. We live in, really, I think, dark times are approaching. In Europe, we have now what is called Bologna reform of higher education. All around Europe, in Europe, which is a horror. It basically means that higher education should be reoriented towards, as they put it, social use. They want to turn us into expert knowledge. You know their idea is that what universities should produce are experts. Like you know, there is unrest and then we have psychologists, sociologists who will advise the police what to do. We have ecological but sorry, this is not thinking. Thinking is not to solve problems. Thinking is to reformulate the problems, like to, to think about is this truly a problem, where is the mystification? And this is why the good news, I don't want to flatter you and all of us, is that uh, today to pursue purely useless academic thinking, it's becoming more and more quite a subversive thing. So don't feel bad, don't get caught into this pseudo Working class, but really extremely arrogant ideological blackmail that if you are doing useless studies, you should feel guilty and so on. No, our way of thinking, precisely in these new situations, who knows what will it mean, biogenetics and so on. We are needed more than ever, not to provide solution, but simply to get what is happening. So don't feel bad in the sense of none of this guilt, you know, like, I hate this pseudo, it's manipulation, like, we are spending here time studying while children are starving in Africa and all that stuff, no? You're trying to make make you guilty, no? Don't fall into that. Do your pure useless studies and you will produce something good. Good. (laughs) On that note of
0: affirmation, let's applaud once more.